I'm Bob Lapine. As part of the Basics 2022 Conference for Pastors at Parkside Church, one of the invited speakers was Dr. John Woodhouse. Uh, Dr. Woodhouse, for more than a decade, served as the principal at Moore Theological College in Sydney, Australia. He's also been involved in pastoral ministry in Australia as well. We sat down and had a wide-ranging conversation talking about everything from what we can learn about our faith by studying Old Testament books to looking at the state of evangelicalism in the country of Australia. Dr. Woodhouse, welcome, and tell us about your journey of of faith. I, I know you went to university to study geology and somehow got into theology instead of geology. So tell us, tell us, did you grow up in a Christian home? Uh, thank you, Bob. It's lovely to be here, and um, we, we are just delighted to be here. We've been trying to get here for three years, mm. and uh, it's it's just been such a joy to arrive and to um, be welcomed in the way in which we have been. Yes, I grew up in a church-going family, I would say. Uh, I don't think that my parents ever, uh, sadly, grasped the truth of the gospel deeply. Uh, I make no more judgments than that, but I'm very thankful to them for uh, that that we attended church and we attended a good church at one stage, uh, a church where the gospel was made clear and as a young young person in later high school years it became clear to me how wonderful, true, good, uh, brilliant uh, this gospel is and how much I was in need of the Saviour and um, that was the beginning uh, of my Christian walk and uh, as many Christians would testify I I suspect uh, not necessarily all but I don't think that I've uh, had a day when I've uh, had any moment of regret for that Mm. Uh, Was that through the influence of believing friends that you came to know Christ? Uh, I can't pinpoint it um, it, it, it was really just the overall faithfulness of this group of young people and the, and the, uh, and the ministry that went on among them uh, and the, uh, just the teaching of the Bible in that context as these things gradually became clearer to me. Of course, uh, looking back, you can see uh, by the goodness of God and his spirit. Yeah. You, you went to university to study geology, right? I did, yeah. And somewhere along the line you said... Theology instead of geology? I think by the time I was going to university, uh, it was clear to me that the most important work in the world was the, the work of God's Word. And uh, I'd, I had a little tiny taste of being involved in that work within the local church context. And uh, yes, I studied geology at university, not because I had a particular passion for geology, although I did enjoy it. But by the time I'd left university, I didn't know what exactly I was heading for, but I was pretty clear that I'd love to be involved in the most direct and full way that I could in the work of God's kingdom. And uh, then with the encouragement of others and with the opportunities that opened up uh, by God's providence, uh, I found myself treading a particular path. My perspective as an American of... The spiritual climate of Australia is not unlike my perspective of the UK, that it's um, maybe post-Christian, if it ever was Christian in a, in a full sense, that it's uh, there's a, a thin 
um, band of believers in the in Australia, but it's not the dominant force in any way in in Australian life. Is that accurate? Uh, it's accurate, uh, but it's complicated, I think, and I, I don't pretend to understand it. Uh, most Australians would have no idea that Christianity or the gospel had any influence on the history of their, uh, 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 the, the short European history of our country. Uh, that's not true. Mm. Uh, there was a profound influence. Um, the group that Wilberforce was involved in was, uh, was involved in, uh, in, in making sure that the chaplains to the original settlement of convicts were evangelical men. Mm. Uh, and there have been a couple of uh, very helpful volumes written recently by Stuart Piggin uh, on the history of Australia tracing the, the influence of Christianity on, on Australia. But most Australians would have no idea of that. Uh, whereas I, it would not be true of America. You, it'd be hard-pressed to find an American who knew anything about the history who would say Christianity's got nothing to do with this country, right. Right? whatever they thought about it. Whereas, uh, And yes, we've moved further down that route that Western society seems to be going, and I think you're right to compare us with the UK. I think we're a little bit behind them, for which we're thankful. Um, in the, the sense of antagonism, the general sense of antagonism, However, it's again, I don't think many Australians notice this, but it's quite striking the number of profoundly Christian people who are in leadership in the society. Mm. So our Prime Minister is a Christian man and you know, quite openly and, and clearly so, unashamedly so. Um, we've had Governor-Generals and we've got... Um, uh, the Deputy Prime Minister of an earlier time, John Anderson, a well-known name, a uh, very fine Christian man. So at the level of the politics of the society, not the media, although within the media we have some outstanding Christian people, they're not dominant, mm -hmm. but they're there. And uh, I, I tend to think that the impression that most Australians have of Australia is probably not accurate, mm. uh, that, that there's more going on uh, than they recognise. But you're right, if you live in Australia and uh, you're not a Christian person, very likely you'd think that Christianity is a very, very small part. There are, there are a small number of Christians, but they're a little bit odd. And uh, it, it's not felt to be a mainstream movement in the society. Is uh, what about the church culture? Is is it? Uh, is there a growing evangelical movement in in the Australian church? Uh, Australia is a big country <laughs> uh, and uh, a scattered country. So <clears throat> you'd be aware it's it's mainly desert, really. <laughs> and so, but but so there's a lot of difference across the country at all sorts of levels, but certainly at a, at a church and Christian level. Sydney is unusual. Uh, there is a strong evangelical Anglican church in the city of Sydney. Uh, we have had a succession of leaders who are, have been outstanding godly men. Uh, we've had a, uh, a theological college, we call it a seminary, uh, which has been faithful, uh, seriously faithful. It hasn't dabbled in um, various things that seminaries tend to dabble in. Yes. Uh, and I would say, uh, under God, there is a strength uh, to the churches of Sydney, which it shouldn't be overstated because we still struggle and we don't have 
there isn't the strength in our churches, at least as we observe. Who knows what, what strength is, I suppose, but there's nothing like a parkside in the city of Sydney. Uh, the only sort of very, very large churches are in the charismatic churches, mm-hmm. and you know, there, there are problems there, in my opinion. But, see, we, we would have about, just within the Anglican churches of Sydney, and I shouldn't quote figures because I probably won't be quite accurate, but if I, with that disclaimer, let me say, I think there are about 60,000 people in church on a Sunday in Sydney. Uh, in a population it, of... Oh, yeah, you've got me there. A few million? Know, I, in yeah, a few million, yeah, a few million, yeah. It's a tiny number. Right. It's a tiny number. But the structure of it is not uh, a, a small number of big churches. It's lots and lots of small churches. I think we've got 300 churches, roughly. And the ministries are not spectacular. Mm-hmm. But by and large, they're faithful. And so it, it's a model for reaching a city See, there are ways of reaching a city through a powerful, significant and large ministry. That happens in many places. It doesn't happen much in Australia. But the model that has emerged, I don't think it's through anybody's brilliance, but the model that has emerged is a large number of small churches, a church in every community, in every suburban area, and many of them doing really good work and under God thriving, but not spectacular. Yeah, I think that's helpful for American pastors, especially those who are in small churches here, which would be the majority of, of course. pastors here. But but we can be so overwhelmed by the big, yeah. the, the, the notable that we, if you're laboring with 100 or 200 people coming to your church, you can feel like you're not making much headway. And yet, as I hear you describe it, that's an essential part of how God is at work in Sydney. Yeah, and I think we need to say that's normal. I I often say to young people thinking about going into ministry who have no doubt, or sorry, not no doubt, but very often been influenced by a very powerful ministry, very significant ministry uh, that that has had a wide impact and I, I want to say I want to say it carefully because I don't. Um, uh, more things need to be said, but uh, I want to say: search your heart and see that you, as best you can work out, that you really would be content and you would find joy in serving the Lord in a small church. And I try and make it as unattractive as possible: uh, small church, elderly congregation and yet you faithfully serve there for the rest of your life. If you're not content with that, if you wouldn't be content with that, now it may or may not turn out to be like that, it could well turn out to be like that, but if you're heading for ministry because your heart is set on something that's spectacular, because you, that's not the only way in which the Lord works, and it's not the usual way in which the Lord works, it seems to me. And so uh, to... Yeah, as you're contemplating ministry, don't contemplate your place in something big. It might work out like that, but it probably won't. You have been involved in theological training and education throughout your career with your work at Moore Theological School. Is that how you say college? College. We we say college. Moore Theological College. Um, Has there been? Um, increased interest among students over the last few decades? Do you see 
a growing passion for theological training? I think it's kind of plateaued at the moment. Um, but we had we had extraordinary growth through the 90s and the early 2000s. Um, quite quite remarkable growth in the number of people uh, coming to study and preparing for great variety of ministries, in, in, including um, overseas missions and so on. Uh, a very very large uh, th- that hasn't continued. It couldn't it couldn't continue at the level it was uh, going at. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's strong in Australian terms. It's strong. Uh, it's not it's not strong in American terms, yeah. but but it, but um, intake is probably a hundred to two hundred students a year, and for us that's that, that's a significant number. We are experiencing here in the United States. Um, I don't know if it's a growing number or just a a, a well. Uh, publicized number of people deconstructing their evangelical faith. I don't know if you've heard that phrase used, but people who grew up in evangelical churches, Mm -hmm. who made professions of faith, who are now either rejecting their evangelical heritage completely or uh, becoming progressive in their Mm -hmm. theological Mm -hmm. trends. I'm I'm wondering if that phenomenon is, is unique to the United States or if you're seeing it everywhere. And I'm, I'm, your thoughts on why that's happening and, and what we should be thinking about that. Oh, that's a big one, I think. Um, uh, like everything else, uh, you guys are ahead of us. <laughs> <laughs> ahead of us in good things well, and ahead of us in bad things. I hope I we're not importing this in your direction. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, you will. Uh, that, that will certainly happen. Whatever happens here... Um, certainly reaches us sooner or later, the good things and the less good things. Um, would you say it's new, though, Bob? So, so uh, evangelical Christians, a number of them losing their faith, that's not new. I mean, that, that, that is sadly been part of it. So what's, what, what, can, can I tease you out a little bit yeah. as I work out my response to this? Um, what, is, what is new? What is the new thing that you're describing? Well, I, I think that's I think that's a good distinction because maybe it's the same phenomenon just appearing with different labels attached to it. You know, yeah. you go back with evangelicalism ten or fifteen years, and um, th- there was a neoliberal yes. movement within the of emerging course. church. We we heard a lot about that, and then that kind of died away. And now it seems that. Um, particularly around gender and sexuality, um, around biblical understanding and interpretation. There just seems to be a, a growing number of young people who grew up in youth groups who are now dissatisfied with the evangelicalism yeah. of their youth yeah. and are are uh, not quietly shunning it, but openly yeah. shunning it. Yeah. And, uh, and yes, and, and, and certainly we are we are encountering that, perhaps not on the scale that you are, and uh, yeah, I can um, I can relate to that very much, and, and uh, it concerns me deeply, because I think there is a there is a need in caring for our young people. I'm not talking about the young people in the society at large, but our young people in the churches. That is uh, deep and profound. They're they're facing challenges that uh, old guys like me don't really understand. And yet those that need to help them are often very young mm-hmm. and 
they need support and wisdom to how do we encounter this because we've got to the stage i mean it it's from my point of view in australia i think it's happened so quickly so recently i silly to put a figure on it but i, I i'm thinking certainly 20 years ago probably 10 years ago the average australian would think christianity was cute and irrelevant mm. but harmless but now it is harmful mm. it is seen to be harmful seen to be against everything that's good everything that's good being individual freedom everything good being equality in an aggressive sense everything good being i don't know things we call human rights that aren't necessarily that are not necessarily human rights yes. and our young people are growing up in an environment where the beliefs we are teaching them and it's not just among their friends it's their the education system it's what they're getting at school it's what they're getting in media it's what they're getting in 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 entertainment uh, they are being asked by their Christian parents and their churches to believe and follow a course that their society is not just saying is irrelevant and cute, but is evil. And that is so hard for our young people, I think, so hard. And it, it's and the temptation, <laughs> I suppose, is to keep them within our Christian... And, and we can create a Christian bubble within the society where we're protected from that. I don't think that's going to last. They're going to grow up. They're going to have to. They're going to have to move into that world, yeah. and we need to equip them for it. And it's it's so very very difficult. Um, and I you know I don't want to. I don't want people to be sucked into the culture wars and all that kind of thing. We've got, but we do need to equip our people with a deep, deep conviction that the teaching of Scripture is not just true. Of course, it's true. But it's good. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. You know, that, that I think, you know, if I was sort of setting an agenda for a youth ministry or young adults ministry, I'd say, um, you know, top of your agenda, by the end of this year, I want everyone not just to believe it's true, mm. but to be deeply believe and rejoice in how good it is. Because mm. it is. Mm-hmm. And you look at the mess that our world is going into. You look at the just the corrupt collapse the conflict the uh, the animosity the despair the resentment that is that is shot through our society and that's true in australia i think it's true at a greater extent here but i i really can't speak about the united states i've been here three days <laughs> um but once you see it it is i mean obviously god's spirit needs to open your eyes but once you see it it's just so self-evident yes that this is good i mean look at a look at a good Christian marriage. Mm. Now, a good Christian marriage is never without difficulty. It's never without conflict. It's never, but it's good. Yes. And uh, the alternative is being offered at the moment in our society. Don't compare. And the damage that is being done to our young people with the with the kind of ideologies that are coming up and they, you know, is now we do need. I think. Uh, we don't need everybody to get immersed in this, but we do need people thinking through uh, how do we equip our people, and particularly our young people, but not only them by any means, how do we equip our people to see the goodness uh, of the gospel they have believed and the one they follow in the face of a twisted outlook on life that 
uh, it's not new in the sense Isaiah spoke of it, didn't it? They call good evil and evil good, light dark and dark light. Uh, that, that that that's the world we're in, and it's um, I mean it's historically interesting. Um, it, it, it seems to me that there are writers that have helped us to understand this that pretty well everything that anybody values in Western culture has been given to us by Christianity, mm-hmm. directly or indirectly. You know, all those concepts of rights and equality and, uh, you know, you, you make a list of the, of the things that are valued and they are dependent. They're deeply philosophically dependent on believing in God. Equality makes sense when you're equal before God. But if, if, if you take God out of the picture... Equality is nonsense. We're not equal. One is stronger than another. One is more intelligent than another. One has more of... Equality makes no sense. What can it It then becomes a conflict. The striving for equality becomes a battle and and that's where we are. Yes. So all of these good things with with a society that has thrown off God and will not have God in their knowledge, as Paul puts it in Romans 1, will not have God in their knowledge, the good things have been corrupted and they become terribly harmful. And we're watching it. And I'd love somebody to help us, and perhaps the books are out there, I just haven't found them yet, help us to understand just how has that happened and what is the connection between the good thing and its relationship to acknowledging God mm. And what happens to that good thing when you decide you will not have God? And our, you know, I, I just feel very deeply for our young people because I don't know, I'm talking about it in my context, not yours, but I'm not sure that we are serving them as well as they need to be served and caring for them as well as we need to. We need to help them to see this. They're, they're, they're not necessarily being typical rebellious teenagers when they find they can't believe anymore. Mm-hmm. They've, they've swallowed a lie that what they've been taught is not good. And in their own mind, at least, they're following their conscience. It's complicated, you see. Mm. Uh, now, we need to have equipped them to recognise the lie as a lie. And, um, you know, I'm... I, I, the the BLM movement was a, is a typical example. Um, in our part of the world, anyway, our young people just could not see how could you possibly not be supportive of a movement with that name, mm, right? Right, and it, often it is the slogans, isn't it? The slogan. How, how could you possibly stand against? <laughs> but of course, you know, we, we won't get into it now. But of course, uh, BLM is not just about that slogan it's about a great deal more right. and it, it, it contains within it lots of lies mm-hmm. I, I just think we need to equip our rather than say no you can't be opposed to racism of course you're opposed to racism if you're a Christian but uh, you, you don't have to get caught up with it it's a big question you ask Bob <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> well I, I've been in recent weeks preaching through the upper room discourse and of course Jesus says Faithfulness and fidelity to him will produce the, the hatred of the world. Yeah. They will hate you because they hate me. They hate me because they hate God yes. or anyone wanting authority. And he says, be prepared to be put out of the synagogue. Be yep. prepared to face death. And you think about – I mean, we're not in Australia or in the United States. We're not in danger at this moment of – 
being put to death for our faith. We have brothers and sisters around the world who do face that on a daily basis. Absolutely. So to even think about what we're experiencing, to to put the label of persecution on it feels like we're – we're, we're putting too great a label on it. But there's a social ostracization that's, yes. that's coming and that I think is increasing. And you talk about young people. How do we prepare young people to stand firm in a Babylonian culture yes. when to, to, to the God of, uh, of Christianity? Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, a wonderful opportunity for us to review our legalism. Because legalism won't cut it. Saying these are God's laws, when you haven't helped the the young people to see that those laws are good, this has got to be grace-led. Yes. And, um, yeah, it is is amazing, isn't it, when you come to the Scriptures and you find they describe exactly the situation that you thought was a new one. So the the things I've been talking about, I I was struck by the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, which... um, uh, similar to what you were quoting from the, the discourse, but when they, uh, it's not at the tip of my tongue, but uh, blessed are you when people persecute you and as evildoers, yes. as evildoers. Yes. And that, that, that's the thing that has struck me. That's what's happening. So our young people are being thought of as evildoers. If they're faithful to Christ. If they're faithful to Christ. Yes, right. It's not just that they're persecuted for being faithful to Christ, they're thought of as evildoers. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that goes as persecution. Now, it's not, it's not threatening to life and so on. But to be thought of by those around you as evil, that's hard to take. Mm-hmm. I don't mind standing for something that's right and good and everyone knows is right and good and, uh, and I'm standing for it and uh, I'm a bit of a hero for that. But when I'm standing for something that my fellow students at school or whatever it is actually regard as evil lacking in compassion or whatever it might be there there's a twisted virtue of which is no longer a virtue once it's twisted um that sees true virtues as evil things and that's um that's really tough in in our current moment between a covid pandemic that's been worldwide um political unrest that we've experienced here in the united states uh, the kind of social upheaval that we're going through, a lot of pastors have found themselves weary, yes, um, disheartened. They've maybe for the first time in their ministry thought, is this really what I'm called to? Yeah. And if I am, how do I find the strength to do that? I imagine that's, uh, that's going on throughout the world. Yes. Uh, what's your counsel to a pastor who finds himself weary Mm. well I was listening to Alistair speak (laughs) just yesterday and uh, he he drew on the words of Jesus I think for this very purpose and so I'll just um, steal his (laughs) insight Uh, the Lord Jesus says come to me this won't be sorted out by a formula or even just an argument. Uh, those things have their place, you know, have, have the thinking things through and understanding what's going on. But I think coming to Christ personally, uh, directly, deliberately, and casting your burdens on him, and then looking back and seeing 
that we are in a time where evil is rampant and we have been given the enormous privilege of knowing the truth and the truth is brilliant and the truth is good uh, and the truth is a person. Um, We need you pastors. We need you doing your work. It's the most important work in the world at the moment. It always has been, but it's very obviously so now. Um, It's much more important than anything that's happening in the United Nations or in the realms of government. Um, The hope of the world is your little church, your little struggling church. That's the light in the darkness. Um, That's the salt of the earth. And you have the privilege of uh, leading and caring for those people. It may be that we're going to go through a season when churches diminish. That happens. Um, we, can, we, we don't want to number ourselves among those who all we can see is numbers and size and, uh, and visible effects of our ministries. We want to recognise that each soul is precious, infinitely precious, and uh, each person you care for, including yourself, by the way, uh, is precious in God's sight and will be brought through this time. And uh, there is... And this time is going to turn out to be remarkably brief in the light of the eternity ahead of us. That's a good word. Um, I think you know that Alistair has, uh, for a, a time now, been teaching through First and Second Samuel. <laughs> yeah, I'd heard this. I'd heard this, yes. <laughs> and so that means he's been turning regularly to uh, uh, commentaries that you wrote on yeah. First and Second Samuel, yeah. which, of course, covers the whole scope of the life of David. Yes. From from uh, before David appears on the scene all the way back to uh, to Eli and, yes, and uh, yes. all the way beyond David's life into the, the reign of Solomon. Why is that era of Jewish history important for 21st century Christians to get their heads around? Oh, brother. Well, that's, that, that's the question of Scripture, isn't it? Scripture is, is so rich. I, um, I think I mentioned in the preface to one of those commentaries, I, I have this peculiar experience that whatever part of the Bible I'm absorbed in at any one time, I suddenly become convinced is the most important <laughs> of all the books in the Bible and the book that everybody should be reading. Um, and so the end, it wouldn't matter which book we turn to. If you spend enough time and thought there, you'll see the, the richness of it. I've just, uh, a little tangential to your question, but um, uh, I've just recently moved in this, in this series of commentaries into Two Kings, and Two Kings is very challenging. It's very, very hard. There's not many happy moments in Two Kings. Uh, there are some funny moments, by the way, but there aren't many happy moments. And I struggle to say, what is the importance of this book? It is so depressing. King after king after king. You get so tired. There are 29 of them. I've worked that out. 29 of them in the, in the book. And every, not every one of them, but pretty well every one of them is a disaster. <laughs> and disasters follow. And, and, of course, the whole book ends up with the, with the people thrown out of the land and so on. And gradually it began to dawn on me that... So this, I'm not answering your question, but one or two, Samuel, we might go back there. But there's two kings which were so difficult. I began to realise that what, what is the importance of the history of Israel in the Old Testament? Why have we got that? Why do we bother with it? Why, why, why is it important for us to know? 
And one answer to that question, it's not the only answer, but one answer to that question is that in the history of Israel, we see the history of the world in miniature. And when we get to two kings, we see our world. Uh, <laughs> a little little later today, I'm about to give a talk and it's going through my mind and, uh, and, and the, some of these things are in it. But um, you read Romans 1 and just listen to these words. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for something else. Therefore, God gave them up. That's our world. Yes. That's our world, and that was Israel in two kings. So you want to have a bit of a look at, at an analysis of the state of our world. Have a look at the state of Israel in two kings. And it's profoundly important, I think. So we were talking earlier about what's going on in the world. Well, this is the lens we want our young people and the rest of us to be able to see our world through. This is what's going on. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. How, can you think of anything more foolish than this? Exchanging the glory of the immortal God for something else. Hmm. That has consequences. Mm -hmm. God gave them up. That's not the whole story, which is great. That's not the whole story. But it's part of the story and it's foundational and fundamental. You know, the, so, the, the idea that we might be headed for 29 disastrous presidents or prime ministers is no, – nobody wants to hear that message today. No, no. But you exchange the glory of the immortal God for something else. What do you think is going to happen? That's a good point. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen? And so, so that, that, <laughs> that was two kings. But in a similar kind of way, you find yourself – uh, looking at the history of Israel, and it's it's not just that they're moral lessons. It's not it's not just a moral lesson written for the story. This is the story of God's purposes being worked out. Mm -hmm. That's why there's a parallel, because God is at work. He is faithful to His purposes, and He showed His faithfulness in the history of Israel in His care for them, which also revealed the unfaithfulness of Israel. And in that, you see this sort of miniature, which you, which you can get your head around. Uh, miniature representation of the history of the world and the state of the world and the, uh, and the need of the world. You see, we, we, I, I'm all for supporting our politicians and I'm all for thanking them when they do good work and admiring the hard, how hard it is. I'm not, so I'm not disparaging that, but they won't solve it. And, and the best of them know that. Uh, our, our thinkers, our educators, our healthcare professionals, whatever they might be, they're not going to solve this. It's bigger than that. And you have, you have a look at the state of Israel and then say, that's our world? Yes, it is our world. And uh, you come away saying, we need a saviour. We need something bigger, better, stronger, more wonderful than anything we have the capacity to produce. And, and this is where... I think many of us get tripped up when we head toward the Old Testament is we read the stories of the life of David and want to pull moral principles out of them or we want to uh, we want to find um, ethical norms there yeah. and and that's a flawed way for us to approach the Old Testament narrative right yeah um, it's an inadequate way the way I'd, I'd prefer to put it I think there certainly are moral lessons, but that's not what the story's there for. 
you know, you, you read the story of David and Bathsheba and the, and the absolute disaster. If you can't draw any moral lessons from that, I think you're a bit insensitive. Uh, of course you can, but it's not there for that. Uh, and the writer, uh, yeah, I think it's fair to say the writer does not draw moral lessons from the stories. So the story of David, and thank you for drawing me back to what the original question was, which is one or two, Samuel. So the story of David, it's an absolutely remarkable story. Uh, I, I've become convinced that if um, if we had to make a list, just from a human point of view, of the great people who have lived, David would have to be one of them. Hmm. And and it is clearly so. I mean, the influence of David on art and literature, uh, he, Dave, you don't think about it very much, but David has had an impact hmm. uh, on the world, um, the like of which is hard to, hard to match. But he'd be up there in the top few of powerful good people uh, David at his best was extraordinary and why was he an extraordinary because he was God's man God had chosen him and the Lord was with him and therefore David at his best gives you a little bit of a glimpse of the kind of king we need but of course David wasn't always at his best That's right. and so uh, David at his worst shows us that we need something better than David but there's this wonderful anticipation, really. Uh, there's a lovely little phrase, I think it's in 2 Samuel 8, where David is king and things are going very, very well. And the writer sums it up and says, he did justice and righteousness for all his people. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's not a bad way to sum up a rule, is it? Didn't, it didn't continue for that for long. But there was a moment in history where there was a leader, there was a king, who did righteousness and justice for all his people. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, and I remember and, and have come back many times to David's last words and his words to Solomon, that he who rules over men must be just, must rule in the fear of God. Again, a message for our day. Yes. Uh, that if, if we're going to see justice and righteousness in our world, the fear of God has got to be the, head, yeah. the headwaters of that, right? Yeah. And the king who is now reigning, even if you can't see his reign, right. uh, is going to pull that off. Hmm. Quite something, isn't it? You look at the mess of the world. It is actually, it's all going to be put right. And the death and resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee of that. Uh, it's all going to be put right. And uh, that's the hope of the world. I have wondered if David was alive today, if he would have gotten a clinical diagnosis of bipolar or manic depression, <laughs> given the highs and lows of his, you read the Psalms. Yeah, when he despairs, he despairs deeper than most of us do, and when he exalts, he exalts yeah. more gloriously than most of us do. Yeah, because both realities were clear to him: hmm. uh, the goodness of God and the depravity of man. Um, they, he he knew both. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got no idea about the psychological analysis. <laughs> I won't go there. But could be. Could be. No, you're not going to diagnose. <laughs> from a I don't distance. think I'll try that. Um, as you look at the church in the world today and where we're headed, are you encouraged or are you concerned? 
Uh, Bob, let me reframe, reframe the question. This is what I like to do in exams. I always change the question to one you can answer. <laughs> uh, I, 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 like, I like, but I do like to think of it just slightly differently. Think, how did you begin? Look at the church in the world today. I want to look at the churches hmm. in the world today. It's a slightly different question mm-hmm. um, because I'm not quite sure what I'm talking about when I talk about the church. And, of course, it's a, it's a generic term for the churches. But far better to think about the churches. And there are so many, so many instances where you say, oh, isn't that wonderful? The, the, the light is shining. The lights are shining. How are we going? It's really discouraging because we're up against something that is beyond us. Beyond us. Yes. Uh, so there, there is reason to despair, but only when you, when you don't uh, fix your eyes where they ought to be fixed. And I, I think it's absolutely incumbent on Christian people to open their eyes and see the goodness of what God is doing, which is, and you need your eyes open to see that because uh, you, you won't see it otherwise. You'll see the overwhelming opposition. Uh, but see that the light is shining. And you know that wonderful theme that runs through the New Testament and be thankful. And be thankful. See, it's only Christianity that gives you the secret of a thankful life. And, uh, you know, I think so, some, of the, um, some of the commentators around at the moment uh, who are not Christian in themselves but are actually seeing this, that we're, that, that we're in a society where life is being lived out of resentment. Everybody who thinks that they're in an oppressed group and that they've been de- deprived of their rights are living out of resentment and shaking their fist. That's ugly. The Christian, I'm sure this is true, that the Christian gospel is the only, um, what's the right word, the only way in which we can learn in the most terrible of circumstances to be thankful. This is not something you put on, it's not something you sort of generate within yourself, but when you know the goodness of God, you know the promises of God, you know the work of God, uh, in the Lord Jesus, then, and and this is the experience of millions upon millions of Christian people down the centuries. Mm. In the most difficult of situations, you can be thankful. And if your life is lived out of a thankful heart, that can be beautiful. But it cannot be beautiful if it's lived out of a resentful heart. Yeah. We are thankful for your faithfulness for your boldness in your proclamation and um, for for the legacy of ministry. I mean, your fingerprints are within the, the body of Christ. Your fingerprints are present on the lives of men and women who are serving in ministry today and through your writing. All of us are grateful for that. Thank you for this time. Thank you, Bob. Thank you very much indeed. It's been lovely chatting with you.